You're listening to the VJ Books Podcast, produced by vjbooks.com, the premier seller of signed books. In every episode, we chat with an author, discuss an upcoming book, or give you tips on how to start your book collection. Make sure to follow this podcast on your platform of choice to get the latest updates, and subscribe to us on anchor.fm for ad-free episodes. For just a dollar a month, you can get exclusive ad-free episodes, plus a monthly discount code usable on anything in our store. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the VJ Books Podcast. I'm John Hutchinson, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with a new brother-sister writing team, Beth and Boyd Morrison. Dr. Elizabeth Morrison is Senior Curator of Manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum. She has curated several major exhibitions, including Imaging the Past in France, 1250 to 1500, and Book of Beasts, the Bestiary in the Medieval World. Her expertise and knowledge of medieval Europe is unparalleled. She has a PhD in History of Art from Cornell University. Boyd Morrison is a longtime friend of VJ Books. I first came to know him back in 2005 or maybe 2006 when he sent me copies of two of his unpublished books. Since then, Boyd has become a number one New York Times bestselling author of 12 thrillers, including six collaborations with Clive Gussler. He has a PhD in industrial engineering from Virginia Tech, so he too is Dr. Morrison. Their new book, The Lawless Land, was met with critical acclaim, including a starred review from Publishers Weekly. They join us today from Seattle, where they are on tour. Beth, Boyd, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's so great to be speaking with you. Well, uh, well let's get started. Uh, I was with Beth, our research indicates this is your first book of fiction. What did you find different in writing fiction? Um, well, one of the things that I found is it's easier because when you don't know the answer, you get to make it up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that came in handy a few times along the way. <laughs> well, I understand in reading uh, the afterword in the book that um, you had to uh, put some of Boyd's writing in context, like uh, going to the pharmacy. You had to put it in the right terminology. Yeah, that was really pretty much my role in the book was was adding in all of the authentic um detail about the Middle Ages. Um, I, I work with Boyd on the plot, but when he when it comes to writing, he he sort of writes it out and then I go back and add in all of that kind of authenticity to lend a medieval feel to the book. So you give it credibility. I hope so. <laughs> I, I never would have done this book without Beth because I didn't know I, I I had absorbed just a tiny fraction of of information from knowing Beth Beth's work as as an art historian, but I never would have tackled this project on my own for sure. Well, it's interesting in literature how often you can find families that work together to create compelling stories. It it seems somewhat rare to see a brother sister team. How was it? You, how was it? You guys decided to work together. Well, I I was. Um, this, I had I had decided I was going to leave the Oregon Files um, with Clive Kostler because I wanted to go back to writing my own books. And one of the genres I was considering was historical thriller. And um, I, I had ideas for different genre or different time periods. I, I, I'm 
a big um, World War II buff and, and some other historical eras I thought were interesting. And I was telling my wife what I was thinking about. And she said, well, if you want to write historical fiction, you've got a built-in co-author. And I said, oh, really? Who's that? And she said, uh, your sister, who is a world expert on the Middle Ages? And I said, oh, well, yeah, that would be interesting. And so I, I called up Beth and asked her if she wanted to do that. Yes. Yes, I would. That's exactly what I said. About, about after that same interval. It took me about two nanoseconds. I've always edited Boyd's books before and really enjoyed the process of coming up with a plot that makes sense and that's interesting. And so it really seemed like a very natural collaboration between the two of us. Well, you know, it's difficult to discuss the lawless land without making a comparison to Follett's Pillars of the Earth. You know, I, I love that series and have to say that your book is more than on par and much more an enjoyable read. Oh, thank you. <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's saying a lot, so thank you. Which of you came up with the first idea? Well, I think we knew we wanted, because of the, the well, the first thing was picking the time period, because the Middle Ages spans quite a few centuries, and so we could have picked a lot of different eras. And I think we just decided that the the time period right after the worst of the Black Death was one of the most critical inflection points in history. And there was so much going on with recovering from a, a pandemic that impacted virtually every life in Europe at the time, but also that it's during the Hundred Years' War between France and England. And so there's a lot of interesting um, elements of that time period that we could incorporate. And then we decided on the characters. Yeah, well, and it, it happened to be handy that I was actually working on a scholarly publication at the same time on 14th century manuscript illumination. So I knew that I would have plenty of primary material um, to help us with hairstyles and horse saddles and costume and interiors and all of that kind of thing. So it just seemed like a really great choice for the time period. And then in terms of the characters, it was also really a bit based on my knowledge, my, my specialty within um, medieval art history is really secular manuscript illumination, which means not church-related, not, not religious. And much of that is around the idea of the medieval romance. Romance was a type that was invented in the Middle Ages, and it doesn't mean quite the same thing that it does today. Um, although there are love stories in medieval romances, the term just comes from the term roman, which means that it's written in French rather than Latin, which was the scholarly language and the church language of the time period. But romances, romans, had a, um, a very similar feel. It was about usually a high adventure being enacted by a knight errant. And that was actually a type that had always interested Boyd. Yeah, yeah. And we, because the knight errant continues to be a um, trope that works well in fiction, um, even today, I mean, a lot of a lot of stories have been based on the idea of a knight errant traveling around, um, saving the day, and then moving on. And and you can see that in stories like The Man with No Name with the Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. Um, Jack Reacher, Lee Child has often said that Jack Reacher is based on the idea of a knight errant from the Middle Ages. Uh, the Mandalorian is basically a knight errant traveling around in a science fiction galaxy. 
And so we decided to go back to the origins of that and actually make them a uh, knight errant in the Middle Ages. And so the, the other element is we wanted to pair him with, with a noblewoman who would be uh, in many ways his equal a, as a um, clever and witty companion on this trip. And also an equal um, participant in the action. Yeah. And, and since you've read the book, you know how Lady Isabel really takes part in everything they're doing from strategy to actually the physical encounters they have. She acts on her own um, quite a bit. And so we really wanted that balance between the male and female characters. And Willa, too. Well, we're, we're trying to uh, not mention any spoilers in the book. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, there, there will be a spoiler alert here because uh, we will do a little bit of that, but not too deep. Okay. Okay. With you in Seattle, Boyd, and Beth in L.A., how did your writing process work? Well, we, we talked to each other pretty much every day on the phone. Um, and what we do, a lot of times we do it by walk, when we're walking our dogs. And we, we plot out the book as we're walking. And, and a lot of times if I have trouble with a chapter or something, I'll, I'll just call up Beth and say, hey, this plot isn't working. Can we talk through it and see if we can figure out a solution? And, and we always do. And um, then I go and, and write the book or I write the chapters and I send them to her as we go. And she edits them because she has edited all my books up to this point. And so she knows my process very well. And, um, and then certainly any period details, I will either just email her or I'll just put in a placeholder in the book, like I'll say, Lady Isabel is wearing something. What is she wearing? And then Beth will fill it in because I have no idea. Yeah, so that, that it, it's really an iterative process going back and forth. And I think one of the things that really works well in our partnership is that we both care a lot about the plot actually making total sense and we don't gloss over things and so when one of us says that's just not working for me we both take it really seriously and we're like okay so now we need to brainstorm about how to make it work better so uh, in the stuff that boyd sent to you there's blanks that says enter text here <laughs> more or less it's just like and they go into a a cottage what do they see and then yeah. i add all that kind of thing in well, I, you know, uh, you mentioned spoilers, so I have to give a spoiler alert because some of what we're going to talk about uh, may contain, contain some minor spoilers, but it's not going to spoil the story. I guarantee you that. But, you know, the story's rich with scenery, history, characters, religious corruption, conflict, revenge, and, yeah, love. I hope that wasn't too revealing. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, Let's start. Uh, I understand the reason you chose the time and place uh, with your background, Beth, but can you tell me about Mont Saint-Michel? I first became aware of that place from Capra's 1990 movie, Mindwalk. Can you share a little on how it came to be included in the book? Mont Saint-Michel is one of my favorite places in France, and it's such a magical setting because uh, for those of you out here that are, who haven't actually been to Mont Saint-Michel or ever heard about it before, it's this just amazing medieval place that looks almost exactly like it did in the Middle Ages in that it's a monastery and a town that's built on sort of a rock precipice. 
and twice a day tides come in and actually make it into an island and then they go out and you can walk across the tidal flats to get there and it was a really great place of pilgrimage in the middle ages people who wanted to pray to saint michael would come make this journey and they would have to time it so that they could get there and get away at a time when you can actually get across and because it's virtually untouched uh, from the 14th century, we thought it would make a great, great setting for the story. And because it's inescapable, it introduced a lot of really interesting ideas for how the plot could work around it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, having seen Mind Walk, uh, reading the book, I had I could envision it really well, and it was helpful. Yeah, it looks like something out of a fantasy novel. It really you, does. It looks like it couldn't possibly exist, and then you see it in real life. And and if we're amazed in the 21st century, imagine people who had never been out of their county in in the Middle Ages coming across upon this and seeing this magnificent sight it would have just blown them away well there seems to be obviously there's a lot of research in your scenic imagery how did you choose the path the characters take through the book i think it was really like a combination of places that we knew that were spectacular i mean one of the things that we really tried to incorporate in this novel and will be an ongoing trademark in the series is that it features places where you can go and actually see these 14th century monuments that are still there. And partly it was because we wanted to travel those places mm -hmm. and see them in person, but it was also because we wanted to travel, see them in person and let them inspire the plot, which I think really worked out really well. Yeah. There were a number of, of places that we visited that, we came up with plot elements that we hadn't thought of until we saw it in person. And we thought, oh, well, this is going to be perfect um, for that. So just as a minor spoiler, one of the, the elements of the tidal flats that surround Mont Saint-Michel is that there's quicksand in them. And if you're not careful, you could get sucked down and um, be stuck there as the water is coming in. And so we thought, well, of course, that's got to play into the story somehow. And so it was a lot of fun coming up with that scene. That sounds like you had an opportunity to visit a lot of the locales. And, and is there a lot of hi the history still exists then? Yeah, yeah. We've, we actually followed pretty much the path that, that Gerard Fox and Lady Isabel take in the story. Um, so that we could visit most of the locations that are in the book and try to, to convey um, what they must have been like in the 14th century to the reader. It's just that we had planes and trains yeah, and automobiles. Yeah, it took them two months and it took us 10 days because we're on high-speed trains and airplanes. So did you, did you have the path in mind before you went and did your research or did that come out of your research? No, we had we had done a fair amount of plotting before we took the trip because that's how we knew where we wanted to go and visit. Um, but but a lot of the details that we couldn't have found online came from from our research trip. And, it, and it, there are some places in there 
like one of the things that that was that is in there um, is that they visit Avignon, which was the seat of the papacy um, during this time period. And I simply had always wanted to go to Avignon because I'd never had the chance to go there. And so Boyd was like, well, let's let's set some of the book in Avignon. And it was great because we saw it for the first time together and neither of us had ever seen it before. Yeah, and it, and it fit into the plot. It made sense, definitely, for the plot. So it was great to be able to see it. Well, as you, as you mentioned, uh, you set the plot at the end of the Black Plague. Uh, is there a particular reason you chose that time frame? Well, it's just such a a, a pivot point in history. It, you know, the, the the fact that thirty to forty percent of the entire European population died within a, several years um, really influenced the the rest of of the, the development of civilization because there was such a um, a, a lack of workforce um, up till that point had been the feudal feudal era and and workers really didn't have a choice but after the black plague killed off you know up to half the peasantry suddenly they had power because there weren't enough workers to go around and so they really couldn't be in indentured servitude anymore and so the latter half of the 14th century saw a lot of peasant revolts um, because of this newfound ability to negotiate. They could they could shop themselves around. And so it was really the, the beginning of the end of the feudal era and the beginning of, of paid labor. And um, and so that was just one aspect. The, the other fact is that it really plays into the plot that if we decided that a character had to have some deaths in the family. It was very believable that, you know, <laughs> anybody we wanted could have died in the last few years um, for our story. And, and you know, and it just was pure coincidence that the current pandemic happened because we started this book in 2018. And so we were already about halfway through the book when COVID started. And so the idea that we were writing this post-pandemic novel where there were still flare-ups um, in the book just was, you know, gave us, an, when it happened to us in real life, we, it gave, gave us an even better sense of what it must have been like back then. What you're telling me is this was pure coincidence? I'm supposed to believe that? Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> we, uh, we, we had photo, photographic evidence in 2019 that we were researching the book. And the amazing thing to me was that when the pandemic hit, we were actually in the midst of writing this book about what it was like for them to experience the Black Death. And then Boyd and I were experiencing it. And it was amazing to me to think that the, the characters in the book were doing the exact same thing that we were doing over 600 years later. We were all huddled in our houses watching Worldometer track the number of deaths and the number and, and where the plague was going and how the pandemic was affecting people. And, you know, 670 years later, we didn't have any better solutions than to just not contact people, which is exactly what they had in the Middle Ages. Now, of course, we could develop the vaccine, but at the beginning of the pandemic, there really wasn't anything to do that they couldn't also have done in the Middle Ages, and that they did do. They tried to isolate themselves. I can't help but see a Monty Python moment with carts in the streets yelling, bring out your dead. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty much what it was like. And it, there's even a scene in the book that kind of parallels that, you know, a more more um, dramatic version of that. So, you know, as as long as the time took for the plague, um, it I guess it could be said that it was gone in the flick of a flea. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, it, it, it came very fast. You know, it, it came to each area very fast, um, but it took time to travel through Europe because, you know, travel was so slow back then. And so it would, it would hit Italy in 1347, and then it would hit France in 1348, and then England in 1349. But then, you know, it, it killed half the people, and then it was gone for the most part, although there were still pockets and it, and it can, you know, the plague continued to come back over the centuries. I mean, one of the worst plagues was during the 17th century in England. And well, you, ne- you never call it the Black Plague, but you use pestilence or the great mortality. And that appears to be intentional. Is there some significance to the word choice? Yeah, because um, in, in the Middle Ages, they did not call it the Black Death or the Black Plague. So okay. we used the word that they would have used at that time period. It didn't start becoming called the Black Death until much later, I think the 17th century. Yeah. So we were trying to be period accurate in that way. Well, that makes sense. Uh, it, it, your character development is incredible. The relationships, the maturing of those relationships and their individual backstories is so important to the story. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the background of the brother's story and how the G- Gerard and James Fox and Basquin characters developed? Yeah, we we had the the um, the relationship between Gerard and Basquin at the from the very beginning. We knew we wanted there to be a rivalry there. Um, the James, James, and we knew that we wanted an older brother for Fox to have looked up to because we wanted to make it clear that James was really supposed to be the hero. You know, he was the older brother. He was, you know, upright and and moral and and really at the in in the previous time when when James was around, Gerard was really kind of the goof goofball brother who just wanted adventure and fun and and since he was the second son he wasn't going to inherit the land and so we kind of wanted to go against the the idea that Gerard was this upstanding guy from the very beginning he had to kind of learn that from from everything he goes through in the book and um and so adding the we we actually added the flashbacks much later in the process based on feedback we got from an editor and we really liked it once we did that because it kind of it fleshed out the the backgrounds and you kind of you could see where all, where he was coming from and what kind of tragedies he went through with his family and the same with Isabel about how they got to where they were and in terms of Asquin, we just, we wanted to have, you know, everything in the Middle Ages um, was based on family. Um, all of your primary relationships in, in life were based on family even more so than they are today. I mean, we all know how important our families are, but your family determined your place in society. Your family determined who you were going to marry. Your family determined where you were going to live in ways that is just not true for today. And so we thought it would be really good to uh, have some tension in the story by having brothers 
who were sort of um, real antagonists, and not just antagonists because they didn't get along while they were getting up, but were set on that path due to the very circumstances of their births. Uh, that becomes clear in the story. Yeah, You know, the corruption within the Catholic Church seems to be a common theme for stories about this era. Bad men in red robes seems to come up a lot. Cardinal Molino, uh, Molino, how do you pronounce it? Molyneux. Molyneux. Cardinal Molyneux is somewhat reminiscent of Car Cardinal Richelieu and their Three Musketeers. Uh, yes. Can yeah. you t tell us a little bit more about the development of him? Yeah, we we um, we we knew he would because the church was such a big part of people's lives in this era. We knew we wanted to feature that in the story somehow. And and you're you're very perceptive that Molyneux is is reminiscent of Cardinal Richelieu um, because we wanted to write a story that that harkened back to the adventure tales like Three Musketeers and Robin Hood, where it was kind of high adventure, epic, epic battles and high stakes and and lots of adventure in the story. And so um Molyneux, I think, came from the the idea that they that was the most powerful entity in in Europe at this time, and so having somebody corrupt w would make it make a very powerful antagonist for our our um, protagonists. And um, we also wanted to make it clear that you know he didn't represent the entire church. So so the first time he's introduced, you see that that people in the church itself knew what he was up to and were trying to stop him, but he was just so clever and, and powerful that that wasn't possible until our, our hero and heroine come along. And I think a lot of people don't, didn't know or wouldn't know going into this book. I think religion, of course, continues to be a very important part of people's lives, but I don't think that, that people understand how powerful the church was in daily life in medieval Europe. And so the idea of having the, the church basically be able to ruin someone's life through excommunication and making them outcasts and whatnot, I think is an interesting period detail that maybe people hadn't thought about before. Lady Isabel of Kentworth and Lord Tunbridge, right, are major characters in the story. Did you have any particular inspiration for them? Um, well, we know we knew we wanted a strong um, female lead in the story, and and we were. It took a while to come up with her backstory and and where she was coming from, but we knew I think from pretty much the beginning that we wanted her fleeing a a brutal fiance. But you know, it took time figuring out well why is she fleeing him and how did that occur and um, and then Lord Tonbridge. Um, I don't know where, where we came up, how we came up with him. Do you? I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. What I remember we talked about a lot, though, in terms of both Lady Isabel and Gerard Fox, is that we wanted them to be characters who are a little bit outside their own time period, who have a resonance with modern sensibilities so that our readers in the 21st century could really empathize with them. And so a lot of their characteristics that we came up with were things that we thought... Um, that, that sort of have more in common with, say, you know, people today. And so that it was this random circumstance that put them together, but it's why they bonded so, so well 
and um, found each other kindred spirits because each of them had different aspects that were um, outside their own time period. And that's what drew them together. Yeah, I think her uh, extreme self-confidence and his respect for that uh, were truly out of the time period. Yeah, that would have been very unusual for the time. And and we did a lot of research into people at that time period. And there were there was um, the, the, the woman who was traveling around. Tell, tell them about that one. Yeah, so one of the inspirations um, for Lady Isabel um, was two really, really famous um, medieval women. Uh, one was a little bit earlier in uh, the medieval time period, and one was just after in the medieval time period. But they were both women who... Um, became famous authoresses at, in their own time period, Marie de France and Christine de Pizan. And Marie de France actually wrote um, poems. And um, for those absolute medievalists who read the novel, they'll actually recognize one of Marie de France's poems at a, uh, a point in the plot. And um, so probably very few people will recognize it, but it's a nice little Easter egg in there. And then Christine de Pizan was someone who actually um, wrote uh, about history. Um, and so we thought that was an interesting inspiration for Lady Isabel, that she would be interested in the process of gathering and writing about history itself. Well, I was meaning the the woman that you had, I forget her name, but she traveled all pil doing pilgrimage all oh, yeah. over Europe on her own Yes, um, during around this same time period. And she was pretty much an adventurer. Um, who did this all on her own while she was having children. Yes. And, and do you remember her name? Yes, that's Marjorie Kemp, who was actually an English woman who, as Boyd said, had quite a number of children. But she went on pilgrimage to Rome. I think she went to Jerusalem um, on her own. And, um, and she actually wrote about it. And the book of Marjorie Kemp is considered by many to be the first autobiography um, of the Middle Ages, which is really interesting that it was written by a woman. Yeah, moving to the horses, you know, Zephyr and Comus, uh, they, they play a huge role in the story. They're really characters into themselves. Uh, how did your previous study of medieval bestiary play into their creation? Well, one of, when, when Boyd and I were beginning to work on this book, the first thing is I said, the book has to feature a, a medieval artwork at its center. That's just a given. <laughs> so that, that's where um, a lot of the plot, as you know, revolves around their um, idea of protecting this amazing medieval um, relic um, for the ages. And so that was the inspiration for that. But as you noted, I did this um, really big international exhibition on the medieval bestiary and Boyd actually came down and saw the show and was there for the opening and was very supportive because um, I was actually writing that catalog at the same time that we were writing the the novel together and so it seemed really natural Boyd and I are both huge animal people and it seemed a little bit much for maybe him to have a dog who sort of went everywhere with him <laughs> so the horse was going to be um, a major character from the beginning and it was really fun to work on Zephyr and work out how he actually plays a very active role in the book yeah he comes to Fox's rescue a number of times but also in terms of what he means to Fox. He, he's, you, you will see in the story that Zephyr is not just his horse, but it, he represents something even more um, sentimental for Fox. And, and it's, it's, Zephyr is kind of one of his last links to his, his life that he had to give up. And so um, 
that's one reason he's so protective of his horse. Um, but also why they bonded because Zephyr is lost as well. And so they've kind of come together and, and um, become a team because of that. And I think one of the reasons that Zephyr comes across as a real character in the story is because like other characters in the story, he has his own flaws. So he's not just a perfect loyal horse. He's a little bit grumpy sometimes, and he doesn't want to do the things that Gerard wants to do. And so I think that makes him really seem to have his own character. Yeah, and then we, of course, had to do the same with, with Lady Isabel's horse, who she comes to be very close to as well. And, and, and that horse also plays a role helping her a number of times throughout the story. Well, and Zephyr had a unique appearance, uh, kind of out of place in itself, and he, he was kind of a beacon that says, Fox is here, Fox is here, as, as the bad guys were looking for him. Yeah, we didn't want to just make him a, a horse that would blend into the scenery. We Because again, as you mentioned, that plays into the plot, and that he doesn't want to give up this horse that is so identifiable that people can track him because they remember it, but he's so important that he would never give it up. You must have also researched a lot about medieval weapons. Uh, how important are Gerard's sword and the bow to the story? It seemed to be well researched. Yeah. Again, um, we actually had a, a friend of mine who, um, he works at the local Renaissance festival as a, in the armory booth. And so he's, we asked him to read the book and make sure we had all of the weapons and armor correct. And, and he said we did. So that would, that gave us more confidence. Um, the, so, so Gerard has a specially made um, Damascus steel sword that he calls legend. And he has a bow that comes from the Holy land and both brought back by his, um, ancestors um, from crusades and uh, again because he has lost his land and lost his family these these weapons that were handed down to him through generations are his last links to his family and so not only are they advanced weapons that that come to his rescue a number of times but also he would not, again, would not want to bear losing them because they are so important to him from in, in remembering his family. And, um, and, and these are real weapons that are based on, on real weaponry at the time. It just would have been very unusual to have them in medieval England. They were very common in medieval, um, in the medieval Middle East. Um, well, ma but, matching, matching his skills with the advanced weaponry uh, made him a formidable character. Yes, and, and we discovered through the research that um, mounted archers was a very big part of the English army at that time. They, they served a big purpose during um, the invasions of France during the Hundred Years' War. And so it, it was very common for, the, for them to, to have mounted archers. And so we decided that, that that would be Fox's specialty and, and, um, not be a, a, a Lancer, um, which also plays into the story later that, um, he has to develop those skills uh, as well. 
Well, finally, let's talk a little bit about the artifact and its significance uh, without, you know, giving away the whole story. And uh, what can you tell us about that? How, how it's obviously integral to the plot, but how did you, how did you figure that out? Yeah, I really feel like the, um, there's a manuscript at the center of the story that itself is almost like a character. And one of the most fun things for me in terms of the creative process was, was trying to figure out what kind of medieval manuscript could be so important that it would be the center of the story in, in, a, in a way that would be believable to the reader. And so just like for the characters, I came up with a backstory for the manuscript. I got to describe exactly what the manuscript looked like. It had documents associated with it. It had its own um, political power. It had social power, cultural power. And I also got to describe it as a beautiful artwork. It came with its own container that also plays a role in the story, a really, really important role. And so all of those factors, I think that was one of the most fun things for me because it's the center of my life all the time because it's the center of my profession and so it was really fun to have had all of this previous work and all of these non-fiction books I've written where manuscripts were the center and then here I'm also writing fiction and a manuscript is at the center so it really felt very natural to me and the relic that the manuscript contains is actually is is actually a legendary um, relic but in the same way that in the Ark, I posited a different explanation for what Noah's Ark may be, we did the same thing for the object at the center of this story in that some people have, have theorized where it might have been and what kind of um, object it would have been. But we came up with another reason that it was never found and um, the reason that they could carry it around because... In other explanations, it would have been too big for our characters to have in their possession. It would have been much, much larger. And so we, we came up with a different theory about why they could have that in this manuscript. What are your plans for the series? Where are you going with this? Well, we, uh, we're working on book two right now. Um, we Again, we went in person to do research on location. And last fall, we went to Italy and Greece to uh, research medieval cities in those countries. And again, all, all of the locations that we feature in the book not only existed 670 years ago, but you can visit them today and see them virtually unchanged from how they would have looked in the Middle Ages. And so, we, again, it was places we had always wanted to visit, and so we just had the opportunity to go see them and actually feature them in the story. And they're going to have high adventure in the second book is they're, they're going to, you know, after like the 14th or 15th book, they're going to be exhausted. Yeah, they need a rest. <laughs> I was just going to ask that. It sounds like you do have plans for continuation of the series. Yeah, if we can, we would love to. <laughs> That's great. Well, is there anything that we may have missed today that you think our listeners might like to know? No, I, I think you're, you asked a lot of great questions. Yeah, great questions. Thank you. I didn't give too much away, I hope. No, no, we danced around everything. I think pretty well because we want to. We we did want to put a number of surprises in the story, and I think we preserved a, a good number of them. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I absolutely love the Lawless Land. It's one of the best books that I've read in a long time. I cannot 
I cannot recommend it highly enough. And uh, for our listeners to know, VJ Books is now shipping signed copies of The Lawless Land. You can find this and other books by Boyd in the description below or at vjbooks.com. Beth Boyd, thank you so much for your time today. Good luck with the book and your tour. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Great talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. This is John with VJ Books signing off. Goodbye.